Good evening all. We'll be reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 18 till chapter 5, verse 11. Page number 1188. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But sun... But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Thank you. Good evening. Are we, we doing well? We're awake, that's good. That, that, that saves um, my message on verse 6 there about being awake and sober. That, good, that sets us in a good um, stead to begin. Uh, I wonder how good are you at waiting? Uh, waiting is an inescapable part of our human existence. You can't go th- through a single day without waiting for something waiting for the good, the bad, or the mundane. And I wonder, how good are you at it? If you went out to dinner to a fancy restaurant, how long would you wait after ordering your food until you ask the waiter where it is? Are you the sort of person who absolutely, unequivocally, categorically, under no circumstances will you complain? Frankly, they could bring out the wrong meal and you would still be happy with it. Are you that sort of person? Is that how you wait? Or are you a timekeeper, justifying your complaint with the constant that is time? Uh, sir, we've, we've been waiting 57 minutes for our meal now. I'd like to just add a warning here. This is the one you don't use when you're around your mother-in-law's for dinner. Not a good idea. Um, or perhaps you show some foresight to inform the staff how long you'd like to be waiting for your food, being completely transparent about your ability to wait. Who are you? I think this is worth some serious academic consideration, so I've taken the time, and I hope you appreciate this, to propose the following hypothesis. How long will I wait for my dinner? Uh, Here are my findings. Uh, In our study, we noticed that there is correlation between time spent waiting and an increase in my level of hunger. In addition to this, we found in every circumstance, the longer I wait the hungrier I get, and the less inclined I am to wait. Our experience of waiting is closely related to what we wait for and how we wait for it. The good, the bad, and the mundane are linked to what we wait for and how we wait for it. And Paul writes this letter to a church community in Thessalonica who who are themselves experiencing waiting. 
And we know what they're waiting for. We looked at this two weeks ago when Matthew was sharing from this, um, from this letter. If you jump with me back to chapter 2, verse 19 in your Bibles, we read this. And Paul, Paul writes, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? And this question positions clearly in the mind of those reading it that Jesus will come again. It places in their minds this idea of the expectation that Jesus will come again. And it's when he comes, not if he comes, when he comes. They know the good news of the gospel, like it says in Matthew 16, verse 27. It says this, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus is coming back. They know this is true. The gospel message teaches it as truth. Paul teaches it as truth. One day Jesus will return from heaven and those who are believers will be brought into his presence. The Thessalonians know this truth and they believe it to be true and they're waiting for it to happen. And as far as they're concerned, it's going to be happening tomorrow. That was their attitude towards waiting. We know this thing to be true and because it's true, it's going to happen tomorrow. The early church had an attitude of expectancy and imminency to Jesus' return. They really did believe that Jesus would be coming back tomorrow, the day after that, next week, the week after that. In their lifetime, they would see Jesus come again. It's an expectancy that 2,000 years on through history, we have lost. We may know it to be true. I know that Jesus will come again. But do I live my life waiting for Jesus to return today tomorrow, in the middle of next week. We've lost that level of expectancy. It's one of those things about church that we, that we know or we perhaps come to know to be true at an intellectual level, but won't really know to be true unless we let this truth transform our lives. Now, the Word of God has a lot to say about this. It has far more to say than what the world says. What the world says is depressingly narrow. Death is the narrative the world writes. You will spend your whole life waiting for something and then you will die. You'll get that job you're after, then you'll die. With a promotion, you'll die. A spouse, you'll die. Retirement, finally, death. During the COVID-19 pandemic, churches recorded that there was an increase in people exploring faith. When faced with an awareness that death is coming, people began searching for hope and meaning. The world's narrative of death wasn't the story that we wanted to be part of. This is called a mortality salience. It's an awareness that one's death is inevitable. And on a mass scale, people realized this and they began looking for answers. 1 Thessalonians 4 has answers to these questions. Paul writes this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. God's narrative is opposite to the world's narrative of death and despair. God's narrative is the story of hope and life. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. At the beginning of our passage today, we see the reason why Paul is writing this part of the letter. 
Paul is very upfront with his intentions. He doesn't hide it behind words. We see this is in verse 13. It will come up on the screens. You can see this in your Bible. He writes, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. And functionally, this is a teaching statement. Listen, listen up. You need to hear this. Let me correct something you've been doing wrong. You've been living your life that way, but come and hear this. This is so much better. There is a disconnect between what the Thessalonian church know about the second coming and their attitude towards waiting for it. They know Jesus is coming. Paul's taught them this. They know this from the gospel, yet they are grieving as if they have no hope. They are so excited about Jesus' second coming, but they're living their lives irrespective of this truth. They're ignoring it. They're grieving over people who have died, yet they know that Jesus has conquered death. They know it at an intellectual level, but there is a disconnect between their head and their heart. So Paul writes to correct them, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is not the way that as Christians we are called to live. There is so much more for us. There is hope. Don't live like that without hope. Live like this with hope because of Jesus. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Don't live like that without hope. Live with hope because of Jesus. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't live like that without hope. Live with hope because of Jesus. How we wait and what we wait for is transformed by Jesus on the cross. Waiting without Jesus only has the trajectory of death and despair. That's where it leads. That's where that story takes us. Waiting in the transformational truth of Jesus on the cross gives us sight of hope. Let me just add here that Paul is not saying don't grieve. Grieving is an emotional response to loss. It's natural for us to grieve over losing a loved one. It's part of being human, being a person. Paul is not saying don't grieve. Paul writes, do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Do not grieve without your eyes fixed on Jesus. Because Jesus changes what we wait and how we wait for it. What we wait for and how we wait for it. Our passage today is sandwiched between two expressions of the gospel, chapter 4, verse 13, and chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. And the teaching within this gospel sandwich is an encouragement for us to keep our lives focused on the gospel of Jesus, so that we may know through the lens of the gospel that we have hope in face of death. Uh, Here's my big point number one. My big point number one is the gospel changes what we wait for verses 15 to 17 of the passage. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Let's dive a little bit deeper into what Paul is teaching the church. Big picture thinking up here. Jesus changes what we wait for. But if we zoom in on the specifics, Paul is teaching the church how death fits into this picture of gospel waiting. 
This was a matter of concern for the Thessalonian church. Waiting as they were for the second coming of Jesus, there was some confusion about what would happen if you died whilst you were still waiting. This thing's going to happen tomorrow, but if I die today, what does that mean for me? Do I get to be part of that? This confusion speaks to the disconnect of what the church knew and the way they were living their lives. Paul sees this concern and this confusion and he points them towards the gospel. Verse 14, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. This is what God has done for you. Don't be clouded with confusion or consumed by concern, but wait with your eyes fixed on Jesus. This truth prevails over all confusion and concern. There is hope for those who are dead, and there is hope for those who are alive. Verse 16 has hope for those who are dead. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. There is hope for those who have died. And just as there is hope for those who have died, there is hope for those who are alive. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now it's important for us to grasp the full extent of what Paul is saying here. We don't know when Jesus will come again, whether we will be alive or dead. Right now, I am alive. Tomorrow, I may well be dead. We just don't know. But it doesn't matter because there is hope for those who are alive and there is hope for those who are dead. And we will all, all of those who believe, will come into the presence of God. Whether you're dead or alive, we'll be caught up together in the clouds meeting the law in the air. There's no differentiation between those who are dead and alive. It's it's we will all be caught up into the air. We will all come together to be caught up. In the air is a phrase used elsewhere in the Bible. It means to come into the presence of the resurrected Jesus. It's to come into the presence of the resurrected one. This togetherness with the Lord is forever. Paul says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Doesn't that encourage you? We're not waiting for nothing in a narrative of despair. We are waiting on the presence of God in hope. Paul ends this chunk of teaching with the phrase, therefore, encourage one another with these words, indicating that what he said has real significance for us in the way we live our lives. Be encouraged in your waiting. Jesus is coming back, and that means there is hope for everyone. This is exciting stuff, and boy, do I need hope. Are you, this evening, encouraged by what Paul is teaching here? Are you encouraged that, there is, that what we're waiting for is transformed by Jesus on the cross? There is hope for those who are alive. There's hope for those who are dead. We will all come into his presence and will be there forever. There is hope. Are you encouraged? I think the Thessalonian church would have heard these words And they would have been encouraged. Their misunderstanding corrected. I can think of a few moments in my life where I've completely misunderstood something, the result of which is foolishness. Uh, I'll tell you about one of those times, only one. Uh, I blame my mum, really. Uh, It's it's her fault, really. Um, Not so much for causing the misunderstanding, but for letting it go on for so long. There are many ways to eat a potato, Uh, Two years ago, I discovered that my favorite potato-based accompaniment was not called a potato wedgie, but it was called a potato wedge. 
Have you come, come across that before? I spent my whole life believing they were called potato wedgies, and then I discovered one day they were called potato wedgies. I discovered this after telling everyone who was coming to my wedding that our evening food contained potato wedgies. I had some odd looks, I will admit, but most people just let it slide. It was only after I told everyone that I was corrected. What's worse, I was convinced I was right and everyone else was wrong, and that actually the truth was that they were called potato wedgies. I told the caterer, a relative expert in potatoes, that I wanted potato wedgies. Sometimes our limited perspective dooms us to foolishness. A narrow or wrong view of something can lead us down the path of misunderstanding. And Paul writes to the Thessalonian church to correct their misunderstandings and give them a gospel perspective to, to encourage them to put their eyes on Jesus. This not only changes what we wait for, but how we navigate that waiting now. Big point number two is the gospel changes how we wait. Waiting in the transformational truth of Jesus on the cross gives us sight of hope right now. And what does this look like? Well, let's return to our passage. This is the bit of the passage that we had read out. Chapter 5, in verses 1 to 11, contain an encouragement for us to embed gospel living into our waiting. Paul gives this encouragement through the use of two opposites. He compares brothers and sisters. That would be the church. That would be those who would call themselves Christians. He compares brothers and sisters to people. People by the very nature of comparison, we would assume are people who aren't in the church, that don't know the gospel, that haven't seen the transformational power of the gospel in their waiting. Comparison was a really useful tool for Bible writers like Paul. It allows him to navigate the different cultural voices of the day and drive home that we have a choice. We can wait without the gospel in mind, and that looks bleak, that looks like hopelessness. Or we can wait with the gospel in mind. That looks like hope. Here are three ways that the gospel changes how we wait. Number one, the gospel changes how we wait. We wait with expectation. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. It will help to have your Bibles open in front of you. Do you see that comparison that goes through this passage between the, the brothers and the sisters and the people? To the Christian, Paul says, wait in expectation. Look what he says to the brothers and sisters. About times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. As we wait for the return of Jesus, don't get sucked in around uncertainty or the potential vagueness. For you know, for you know. But what do we know? What is it that we know? In verse 2 it says you know, but, but what do we know? Well, Jesus said this, but about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the sun. That's Matthew 24, verse 36. What do we know? We know that we don't know. And that's okay. We're not supposed to know when this is coming. Jesus himself, the son, doesn't know. 
What can we do with this not knowing? About times and dates we don't know, but why not live with expectancy? And when Jesus comes, it will be like a thief in the night. That's how Paul describes it here, like a a thief in the night. It's not to criminalize Jesus' coming. It's not to say that it's going to be like a criminal, but it's to drive home the point that we don't know when this will be. A thief doesn't pop around before he robs you and say, I'm doing a little bit of work in the, in the neighborhood. I've got some free time on Tuesday if you'd like me to pop by. We don't know when this will happen. Leith Samuel, previous minister at Above Bar Church, said it like this. If there is one thing certain about the timing of the Lord's return, it is this. We cannot be certain of the timing. What is written as an encouragement to the Christians, to the brothers and sisters, in comparison is a warning to the people. Look to what Paul says about the people. In comparison, those who do not wait with expectation delude themselves with peace and safety. They say, peace and safety, all the troubles in the world around them, peace and safety. They are deluding themselves. It will all blow over. Their waiting is not gospel focus. And the consequence of this is, well... It's destruction. And through comparison, we see that this is not how we should live. Remember, Paul is encouraging the church to embed gospel waiting in their life. Paul says, what Paul says in verses 1, 2, and 3, he says again in verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are not in darkness. Don't be robbed by vagueness and uncertainty. You know the gospel Be certain and expectant. That's point number one. Point number one, wait with expectation. Point number two is to be awake and sober. Again, Paul makes use of comparison to encourage us to embed gospel living and our waiting. He says this, you are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. What Paul is saying here, he's actually said already. That first comparison to wait with expectation, he's just saying the same things again. The first comparison we have in these verses is between those who live in the day and the light and those who live in the night and the dark those who know the truth of the gospel and those who live without that truth in their life. The brothers and sisters who know, they know the truth of the gospel and the world who do not know, the world who delude themselves with what they do not know. Paul is making his first point again here. We are people who know the truth. The children of the light and the children of the day know the gospel. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We know the gospel. So then, let us not be like the others, it says. If you know the gospel, let it transform your waiting. The comparison between day and night, awake and asleep, those who know, those who don't know, this comparison goes further than just encouraging expectancy. It calls for action. We're encouraged to do something, and that something is to be awake and sober. This comparison builds on the first. Those who are in the day and the light, Christians, are to be awake and sober, not like those in darkness and the night who are drunk and asleep. Those are the people. 
If you know the gospel, let it transform your waiting. Let it transform how you live. Be awake and sober. Be intentional with how you live. The third way that the gospel changes how we wait is this. Put on faith, love, and hope. A life transformed by the gospel looks like this. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Putting on, not as a fakery thing, not as putting on a facade that isn't ourselves. This is not fakery, this is the real thing. This is clothing ourselves with faith, love, and hope. Letting the outworking of the transformational gospel reflect the transformational work of the gospel in your life. I'll say that again, it's on the screen. Letting the outworking of the transformational gospel reflect the transformational work of the gospel in your life. It starts with knowing the gospel and letting the gospel transform us. When we come to know the gospel, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that image of hope, of the hope of salvation as a helmet and the faith and love as a breastplate, this is head and heart stuff. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of faith and love, head and heart. So what in Jesus' name are you going to do about this? A little phrase that I picked up when I was studying theology a couple of years ago. As a phrase, it encouraged us to think further about what we'd heard. It drives us to action. What do we do with this knowledge that we have? What do we do with this encouragement? Paul was teaching practical theology. He was not teaching in practical theology. He was teaching practical theology. We can all take something from this passage and do something about it in our lives. We can all give sight of the gospel and let it transform what we wait for, that's Jesus, and how we wait. Now, you don't have to call yourself a Christian for this teaching to be relevant to you. You can bring your questions, come to know God for the first time. That's where it starts. Come to know the gospel. See how it can change your life. There's more I need to do around expectancy. Do I worship with expectancy? Do I pray with real expectancy? Here's the hard one. Do I, do I spend my money with expectancy? Do I spend my money in the expectancy that Jesus is coming back? Do I put on faith, hope, and love? Am I intentional in that? Do I let the gospel transform how I wait and what I wait for? Ultimately, do I let the gospel transform my life? I'll finish now with a question, a question for wherever you're at. The question is this, what are you waiting for?